This podcast is recorded in Byron Bay on the Bundjalung Nation. I'd like to pay my respects to the traditional custodians of this land and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Welcome to It Takes Courage to Tell the Truth. This podcast features women from around the world focusing on themes such as birth, business, sustainability, women's health, sex, death, politics, and much, much more. A podcast where we can find our magic, reclaim our witchcraft, and discover our lineage as women. In this conversation, I talk with Tika Rahana. She is a transpersonal counsellor, a student of Indigenous knowledge, a frontline activist and artist. Tika infuses themes of social injustice and ancestral connection into her theatre, music and poetry. Tika's work accentuates the need for pleasure and ritual as embodied forms of dismantling systems of oppression. She is inspired and informed by her matriarchal Indonesian roots, as well as the works of Adriana Marie Brown, the Nat Ministry. Tika currently resides on Bundjalung country, working in mental health and disability support work. In this conversation, Tika and I discuss frontline activism and taking activism from behind the screens into the soils and onto the land and standing beside those who have fought for a long time to make this country better. Welcome, Tika. Thank you so much for having me here. Thanks for joining me in this very um, important conversation and something that I feel so passionate about. Um, Before we begin, I would just love for you to start by unfolding your own personal story with frontline activism and how you've arrived at this line in the sand in which you stand on today. Mm. Well, right now I am in my beautiful home on Bundjalung Arakwa country and it's raining and I feel quite safe and far away from where I was just two weeks ago on um, Janga country up in central north Queensland at Camp Bimbi on the Adani front lines. And um, yeah, how did I arrive here? I feel right now as someone who lives in a place where not only have we experienced fires, bushfires in the last year, but simultaneously floods. We're in a really pivotal moment in history and we're living it. We're living the climate catastrophe. It's no longer a concept that's happening outside of our windows. It's very much happening within our homes. And so I guess I've arrived here because I feel like I have no other option but to use my body as a way of conveying my dissent to the powers that be. And yeah, I just feel like there's, there's no other option for this body and for this soul of mine. So 
I'm not sure if that fully answers the question, but I guess that's why how I've arrived here. So for listeners um, who may be new to the concept of frontline activism, could you just describe a little bit about what that means and what it entails to be a frontline activist? Mm. Well, I feel like there's so many different facets of frontline activism. And I feel um, based on the media portrayals, a lot of the time um, it can appear as if they're just these wild anarchists uh, locking onto things and getting arrested. And it's a lot more complex than that. And I'm not going to pretend like I'm some well-seasoned frontline activist. I have um, been on the front lines, uh, not for as long as some people have been fighting for. However, yeah, frontline activism, it's a place where you're so close to the realities that are happening, whether that be mining, whether that be logging, whatever that might be, there are these camps usually composed by really beautiful, inspiring people of all different demographics who have come together for a common cause and are all uniting, um, again, to express dissent for um, extractive processes that are not in service to humans or non-humans or the planet. And so, yeah, these spaces for anybody and they really vary, you know, when at the at Camp Bimby up north, there's like gorgeous permaculture gardens and um, musical instruments and people cooking and people singing. And, and then as well, there are people organizing um, actions, nonviolent direct action, which is essentially peaceful protesting. And um, yes, illegal activity can be involved, but it's definitely not mandatory for these spaces. Um, yeah, so I hope that speaks to frontline activism. I also love that, you know, our legal system, people are so within the binary sometimes in our society of good and bad without recognising that the complete corruption that exists within our law system here um, in a country that was not only stolen but lied for a big portion of its existence as to how it reclaimed these lands as its own and then goes to set up subsidies and re-regulate um, big industries so that they may go in and extract the land for um, commercial gain, which is not actually bettering our society. And in fact, most of the time with these mining companies or big agricultural systems that we see in place, it's it's not for the better in which they tell you, oh, you, we need to mine or you won't be able to light your lights up in your house. It's actually just a, a pure pyramid to create wealth for that very few percent of um, rich white men that sit on top. Recently, I read that you write so how could I move you to join the front lines? Statistics, stories, photos of dead coral and dried riverbeds, decaying animals on the brink of extinction, coal, polluted dystopias. Did you need music and poetry to serenade you closer to the causes that call you most? For I will sing to you, recite you, verse and stroke strings to beckon you in. The front lines need your help and they need mine and ours. 
I'm not asking you to get arrested or participate in illegal activity, but would you consider taking a slither of your gorgeous existence and sharing it with the dark nooks that need you and whisper to you in quiet moments? When I ask myself why I did what I did, I think of my children to come, if they are to come. I love this. It's so strong and powerful and something that I think many people are not thinking about in their everyday choices, which is, you know, how can we put our, ourselves aside to really stand for what we believe in, not just for us, but the future generations. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what actually happened on 24th of March at the Adani coal mine with your experiences there. Mm. Thank you so much for reciting that back to me. It was really beautiful to hear that resound. Um, yeah, so I posted that online and that was really challenging for me because I had to have a bit of an ego check as to why on earth was I sharing this online on a social media platform? What is it that I'm wanting to receive back from uh, the public and, and audiences? And <clears throat> yeah, just wondering, is, is it because I want to be recognized or do I want to be celebritized for being this sort of hero, frontline activist. And I, yeah, I realized that I'm actually a tiny little grain of sand on this great big beach. And there's a greater system and systems and they're so intricate. And I'm just a tiny little part of this greater entity, which is I suppose civil disobedience in in systems in structures of, of oppression of patriarchy of capitalism this is all these are all designs that we can actively choose to participate in dismantling and so yeah on march 24th i alongside two very powerful women who traveled up from gumbangi country on the mid north coast we uh, locked on at the Carmichael Railway coal site. We'd never been to this site before. We'd only seen drone images. Uh, we hiked about six kilometres in the pitch blackness through spin effects as high as your waist in uh, falling over dried riverbeds. And I was accompanied with, a, with an elder an amazing woman named Susan and she's 74 years old and we realized that we've got a 48 year age gap there and that for me was already just so potent in in its message the fact that here you have um women of all generations gathering to this very male dominated coal mine site putting their bodies on their line very vulnerable, vulnerably, locking on to this, like, such masculine machines. And, um, yeah, we were locked on for a full day. We, we stopped operations. Um, and, yeah, the police came and they locked, uh, they, uh, cut 
Susan out and through police force, did they get me to lock off? And um, yeah, soon after we were arrested and the rest is history. But I feel something that's really, that I really want to uh, communicate through that um, action is that it's really uncommon to have police force used in a non-violent direct action, in a peaceful protest. Uh, and here we're dealing with rural police, predominantly white men, uh, predominantly people that either support the coal mining industry or are part of communities and family networks that are within. So they're very biased and... Um, yeah, it's really unfortunate to say, and I feel like I'm still definitely processing this in my body. But um, yeah, I experienced police brutality based on racial profiling. My experience was very different to the other two women who are white. Um, and yeah, force was used against me, unnecessary force and um, just a lot more severe circumstances, which while the other two activists sat in the back of an air-conditioned police car, um, I was being pushed towards a divvy van, which was 50 degrees, and I was told I was being separated and segregated and, and moved 250 kilometres in the opposite direction as the other two women which, whom I locked on with. And so, I mean, I guess that just adds a whole nother layer um, of, of my action, which is still very much in processing. Mm. It makes me just think and wonder how anybody can continue to pay taxes or uphold this really colonial oppressive system that allows these police brutalities to continue and I just wonder in a society that's built on sexist and racist legislation, do you think there is a way forward for us to live under a system like this or are we in need of something completely different and new? Mm. Well, in... In an amazing book that I, I love so dearly, it's called Pleasure, Activis Pleasure Activism, The Politics of Feeling Good by Adrienne Marie Brown, which I'm sure you're familiar with. She speaks about, um, I won't do justice to the quote, but essentially like the revolution can't be created if we're just to conform to existing roles and relationships or in systems already defined by um the current system that we're, we're wanting to overthrow. And so I do feel frontline activism is a way of working within the system. And then, of course, we need people on the outsides planting the seeds and growing the gardens and doing the work and unthreading those deeply knotted um, threads that have been created um, since we could say colonialism. And so I feel like both work is really valid but yeah it's almost like that saying of like the same hand that feeds like where we're fighting the same system that we want to dismantle 
And so we do really need to reimagine new ways of being and almost a step beyond reimagining. We need to actualize, we, we need to be actualizing. We need to be living it and it needs to be an embodied experience. Mm. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I think that many people are, are definitely awakening to some kind of reality and understanding of the injustices specifically racist in this country um, to our indigenous and black and brown brothers and sisters that walk on this country and I just I wonder you know it seems like we're hurtling from one crisis to the next and every day on the news there's somebody else being imprisoned for something that's so ridiculous such as stealing food to feed their hungry mouths or being imprisoned for walking on the streets and the imprisonment is not because these people are actually doing anything to the criminal justice system in terms of standing up and fighting for it it's purely based on the color of their skin mm. have you in your life experienced you know racial misconduct and places where you have felt not wanted because of the skin color in which you exist in hmm. yeah definitely actually most recently um since i have began practices of i guess an awareness of how i can dismantle patriarchy within this body of mine since beginning certain practices I've had an influx of memories come back from before I even thought I could have memories. And whilst I don't feel like I'm a victim of, um, you know, intense racial discrimination, like some people in the United States and definitely in this country, First Nations people, I can't even imagine um, what it would be like because I feel as though I have benefited from a white system. And so although my skin is brown, very much my conditioning and um, a lot of my complexes, you could say are white. And this is why I feel like these very deeply embedded systems of oppression exist far beyond color. And the design is so complex that one person can appear brown on the outside and feel white simultaneously on the inside and be sort of existing in these in these worlds which perhaps I don't know Ella maybe you can relate to but I have an experience when I was like one of my first days of uh, prep and I went to go and sit with a group of girls and these girls all had beautiful white skin and gorgeous blue eyes. And they told me that I couldn't sit with them because only the pretty girls had white skin and blue eyes. And because I didn't fit that, then there's no way that they could be my friend. And I just remember going home and crying and crying to my mum to the point where I actually started in the shower to scrub my skin with whatever I could just believing that I would have white skin underneath and that as you can imagine absolutely broke my mom's heart and I didn't think that I had any remnants of 
of that sort of those sorts of memories um and recently have I only started to excavate and actually realize how much I am still wearing that and how much that actually has shaped uh my worldview um yeah I'm also so curious to hear about your experiences too Ella yeah, I mean, I think I have the deep privilege of walking through the world and in this country as a fair-skinned Indigenous person. And in that way, I'm very palatable to mainstream um, society. But I have the embodied experience of being raised with my, my Black and Brown cousins on a mission in a space where I felt the heavy-handedness of what I call those missions and my family as the forgotten people because the rest of the mainstream Australia would like to assume that Aboriginal people do not exist anymore. Um, we would like to think that they somehow have all been extinguished and what we're left with is just the remains of many um, intergenerational and intermixed Indigenous people, but the reality is as far from that. We have many Aboriginal people living on the outskirts of small country towns in hour, two hours away from shops. Um, we have vast communities up in North Queensland and the Northern Territory who have been fractured through colonisation and then because of their fracturedness, they've been disconnected from culture and country because of the legislations in this country, which would normally put a bullet in their head if they spoke their own native tongue and now have made these forgotten people dependent on food systems that are encroaching on their health, um, mental and physical well-being. And I think that my racism has come more from a space of speaking to this and people shutting me down for not having a embodied lived experience of being in a black or brown body but I have an experience of living in amongst those communities and I have firsthand seen it and I think we're getting to the point like you said of really we we need to start witnessing it's not about our skin color but actually what are the systems that live within us that we enact in our everyday life that encourage us to have crime and punishment embedded in the way that we treat our relatives, our lovers, our friends. How are we continuing these Western ideas of success by celebrating people who get high paying jobs and not celebrating those who put their hand in the soil or raise children by themselves? So I think in some ways like colour plays a part but also our internal systeming is the biggest thing that upholds this machine-like structure and as long as we all raise our hands and allow that structure to be held by us we are consenting to an oppressive sexist racist system mm. Mm. totally and just to speak on that as well i feel I will speak as, as someone who is brown as well as white. This is where these notions can really be married with frontline activism because I feel frontline activism is a way in which white, particularly privileged people, 
we can actually exercise our privilege through means of civil disobedience. And so that means that we give the people on the fringes and the minorities, First Nations people, people of colour, we allow them space to rest and knowing that they're a part of this greater communal web that is truly standing in solidarity. And I feel like it's really common, particularly millennials, you know, to, uh, we see all these, these faces, like the Greta's of the world, and we, and we get inspired to walk the streets with our banners. And the question is always like, what can, like, how can I stand in solidarity? Or how can I evoke change? Or what is my purpose? Or what, how can I live more truthfully? And I feel like a solution or an answer, or even like a alleviation of that burdensome those sorts of burdensome questions is you can you can exercise your privilege you can exercise your whiteness within a system where there's like such huge social imbalances you can flex that and it's um it's a powerful way to to stand in solidarity i believe how did you manage to awaken to your privilege because I feel like everything you said is so poignant to what we need to be doing with our privilege as people who walk through the world who may have more advantage points than others but often what I see is that people one don't recognize their privilege or two it's very hard for people to give up power and privilege for another feel as though to deny one's privilege when it's very obvious that perhaps my world and perhaps the audience who's listening were predominantly white middle-class privileged people so I feel as though to deny that is a huge denial of many many things and so maybe what's being asked of us is just to get really honest and really real. And I know that having these kinds of conversations with a lot of people is uncomfortable and understandably so, because what is it asking of us? It's asking for us to check ourselves and to check the fact that for some reason we've been born into, into this system that prioritizes us and whilst others, you know, are at the whim of injustice. And that's confronting. I don't think anyone can look at that and with rose-tinted glasses. And so I think what's being asked of us is to have some really hard conversations with ourselves, with our communities, with our families, as difficult as that may sound. We need to start having conversations about it. And so, yeah, I suppose through just self-reflection and just being real with, with the realities um, was definitely a way of me awakening to my privilege. Although, you know, you didn't really have to like hit me over the head with a pan for me to realize that I, I the system has, has I'm, I'm favored in the system despite being, Brown. I'm still a part of a very privileged existence and, and web. And so, yeah, I guess having hard conversations. And then the next step 
is, I suppose, what are you going to do with your privilege? Like what responsibilities now are you carrying now that you've acknowledged that you're, you've got the upper hand and I don't believe that there is one size fits all. And I'm definitely not trying to express that frontline activism is the only path because I, I know there's just so many different facets and we're all being called into different corners that, that need our attention. And so, yeah, I guess just being real with your privilege and then what are you going to do with that? How does that look? What does that look like as a lived experience? Hmm. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you may see unfolding on social media platforms as people take on the identity as an activist and are definitely active online through posts and what I think they assume is allyship by just simply sharing another person's post. But in some way, do you think that this dilutes the potency of activism and somehow gives people a an excuse or rather a an ability to say, I've done my bit? Mm. Yes, definitely. I, since living here in the Northern Rivers, I have noticed that I'm just going to, I guess I'm just going to cut to some truths, is that it's very easy to repost and to wear the t-shirts and to post the Instagrammable images. But I, in my experience, when those calls for red alert or desperate needs for bodies on the front line, when those calls are made, very few of those people actually show up. And um, it definitely does dilute the whole movement because we've sort of got to like nitpick through people who are facading as if they are showing up when they're sitting behind their phones. And yeah, I mean, I believe in that awareness element. So getting the message out. Yes. Incredible. But then again, like how I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what does it look like when you're living it, when not just when you're sitting there on your phone or talking about it in concepts, which, which are, there's potency in that, but then like what step are you taking more to live it? to breathe it, to share it, to make sure that it's touching other people. And yeah, I've just noticed that there's a bit of a preaching to the choir in our area. And I also guess that we live in an age of, um, yeah, social media platforms where a lot of us do desire perhaps to be a little bit celebritized or to appear as if we're doing really good things or, you know, I'd like to believe like deep down, we, we really do want to be a pillar of change and perhaps are scrummaging around desperately just trying to find any way in which we can do that. Except I just feel like perhaps there's a bit of a mistranslation there. Um, and so, yeah, I definitely think that movement can be diluted based on Instagrammable activists um 
in short, yes, <laughs> I do believe that. Yeah, I think there's something to be said about uh, supporting a movement and then enacting from that place. And if we really truly are, say, for example, I think of food security and sovereignty, if we are really looking at these places as not being keyboard warriors, what I see often play out, especially around food security or um, sovereignty, is that these ideas that we need to attack each other for our dietary choices, rather than looking at these bigger overarching structures, which I also see within the activist movement. It's why are you not fighting for the seas or stand up for the forests or we're constantly creating division within our society that's actually tearing us apart rather than uniting us on a front that I think many people can see when they're in the activist world that it is not each other we need to be fighting, but a bigger, greater system that is forcing us to really kind of scrabble for the scraps of what should be a very abundant world for all. And I wonder, talking about systems and structures, how would you encourage people, other than frontline activism, to walk their walk rather than talk their talk? Yeah, it's interesting. I have just been reflecting on how much I've been using the word systems and structures. And, you know, it's all really real because that's the paradigm that we're living in. But I'm more interested when I think of the reimagining of what we could, how we could exist, I'm more interested in webs and seasons and cyclical, cyclical ways of being in community with one another rather than this notion of like hierarchies or even, you know, structures, these like very man-made ideas where, you know, I'm like, I'm so much more interested in the softness of a, and strength of a web. And so, yeah, I mean, if you can't be on the front lines, then perhaps, you know, someone or you could support people on the front lines. There's so many different ways. And then if you want to sort of return it and return it home, then like what ways are you living that is actually in favor of something outside of yourself how are you dismantling systems of oppression within your own lineage within your own being like how often do you put your hands to the ground and when do you give just to give rather than it be some sort of transactional capitalist exchange and I feel like that's all really personal and I'm definitely not here to judge the way that anybody's living. I don't claim to be spiritually evolved in any way, shape or form. I kind of love that. But I I guess, yeah, how are you giving to something outside of yourself, which is simultaneously, you know, in the same breath, giving back to yourself? And in what ways are you uh, existing and uh contributing to something that exists beyond 
yeah, patriarchy and capitalism and white supremacy. Like, do you have your own practices where you are unwinding and unthreading those deeply embedded knots that have been, yeah, that have been there since we even had a chance to decide whether that's what we wanted or not, you know? And so I feel like if the front line doesn't feel like it's your cup of tea, then maybe you can find ways to show up to other front lines. <laughs> when you talk about supporting frontline workers and people on the front line, what what is the best way for us to support frontline workers? Is there organizations we can donate to? Is there specific individuals we can donate to? And can you point us in the direction of how we could potentially assist them monetarily or perhaps even with our platforms or voices? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, my mind is pretty Adani focused right now and FLAC, which is Frontline Action on Coal. They're an incredible group who are pretty much like the head honchos of this, like, I won't say that they're running this movement, but they're definitely the main support system for frontline activists. So um, you can donate to them. You can also just visit the camp, as I previously mentioned, they're always looking for people to help in the gardens. Like I feel these spaces, what they are lacking in is um, like that exit that you shared of mine, Ella, like, the music and the poetry and like the beauty and pleasure and ritual, you know, these, these front lines could really do with that. And so, you know, even if you just want to go and strum strings or, or, you know, people who would love just to go like that's so needed. And so, um, yeah, for those interested in Adani frontline action on call, you can find them online. And um, yeah, I guess also just like, I'm, I'm a big advocate for what is local. And so going to your local hubs and community centers and seeing what's going on, you know, recently a dam was shut um, just around here, which I'm sure you know about Ella, like that was literally just people banding together. It's, it's not as confronting as sometimes it appears. Sometimes it's just asking us to reach out that little bit further than we're used to and seeing what's happening around us and how we can be involved. Yeah, totally. No, I absolutely agree. And I think like uh, local is where we start with our activism first and foremost, because it allows us to protect our community and we all should be protecting our community rather than going into, you know, other communities and sometimes being the voice for those people. I feel like here, even in the Northern Rivers, you know, there we're currently faced with a pump track, which is going to be one of the largest pump tracks on the East Coast being put into Suffolk Park. And you know, whether you're for or against this pump track, the reality is it's going to be disrupting a lot of wildlife. They're going to be removing trees and basically anything that includes concreting the earth, I think needs to be protest because we have enough concrete already and it suffocates her body. And so even for our Northern Rivers listeners, I beg you to look into this pump track and 
send messages to our mayor simon and ask him why you know why are we not putting more community gardens in these spaces and why are we creating more concrete hubs that are actually teaching our children that we can be on top of nature rather than a part of it mm. mm -hmm. i think about um Audre Lorde's work and how she talks about self-care being an act of political warfare. And often I think what comes to mind for me there is how the self-care movement can somehow be hijacked. And sometimes we take these quotes from um, African-American women or Indigenous women who are real minorities and have struggled in fighting against a pushback of genocide, not only to their culture, to their people, and talking about self-care as a resilience, a way of moving forward so that you keep your lineage alive. But often what I see, especially in alternative or progressive communities, is a hijacking of privileged, normally white women, taking self-care movements into more selfish behavior and quoting these African-American or indigenous women as somehow being aligned with that space. So I ask you, what are your thoughts around self-care and the self-care movement? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, the concept as this like capitalist sellable thing, I say we burn it to the ground. Um, but as again like as this quiet or loud but as this more personal relationship with it in our bodies where when where perhaps we don't feel like we have to post every time we have a bath and put some rose petals in it when we're actually just doing it for ourselves i feel like that's the most powerful you know like i think of definitely my european ancestors um, people of the lad, even my Indonesian ancestors, you know, people of the lad working with herbs and traditional medicines and healing people through their touch, like they weren't posting that anywhere. They weren't like shouting that people were coming and finding them because they were feeling them, you know, like the, it wasn't something that needed to be, yeah, it, it didn't need to be capitalized. And the most joy that I have is like when I'm harvesting from my garden and it's just me and maybe some birds that are around me or, you know, I don't, that's such a personal experience that I share with myself. And so I feel like if we can, again, like just turn the gaze, like perhaps what we're really like, I'll speak for myself, like, I really just want to have this intimate experience with myself where I'm nourishing myself and I'm, um, you know, in this process of restoration and like, that's for me. That's an, ex I'm doing that for me. And um, I'm, yeah, I'm not condoning sharing that because maybe again, that's like, it's inspiring for other people to see that on platforms on social media platforms and know that that's tangible for themselves. But then, yeah, again, like imagining what happens beyond that, what happens, like, how do we carry ourselves when, despite it's the fact that we're not, it's not being shared or, or we're not being witnessed in that all the time. And, um, 
Yeah. I love um, Trisha Hersey from the Nat Ministry. She really inspires a lot of my work and understanding. And she speaks of rest as a form of resistance um, because it's so disruptive to capitalism and it's so disruptive to white supremacy. And so I think that getting offline and getting back into our bodies, um, true self-care, where we're not um, publicizing it um, because of our capitalist conditioning. I think that that's a super radical act. Mm. Mm, I love the idea as well around the quiet revolution and the woman or man who chooses to revolt by just simply putting their hands in the soil and growing a garden. And I know you have a love of gardening similar to me. Will you talk a little bit about what you've discovered about your own relationship with the earth by just growing your own food and being in that place of real sovereignty to your own food systems? Mm. Yeah, well, it's been a fascinating journey. So I kind of went on this tangent when I first started getting into food growing of like, permaculture, agroforestry, like all the concepts, all of these concepts that um, as incredible as they are, have essentially been taken from Indigenous First Nations ways of being and just essentially been painted white so that it's um, palatable Palatable. to, exactly, to white people. Um, And I really got lost in a lot of the concepts and like more in my head than actually in the garden. And I was like, wait, what am I doing? Like my ancestors, again, they wouldn't have needed books and all of these different hierarchical formulas and structures, although definitely not discrediting the value of that. But again, like coming back to my body and my lineage, like my ancestors knew what they were doing. And so I definitely can just I I know what I'm doing as well and so when I kind of put all of the books aside and actually put my hands into the earth it's incredible the amount of dare I say decolonizing that happens with me in my garden not only do I have the herbs and the medicines of my European ancestors like currently echinacea flowers are blooming and I've got a plethora of mugwort and lavender and but I you know I also have the medicines and the plants of my Indonesian ancestry and so I've got the galangals and the lemongrass and um, I've just planted jasmine vines you know so this garden is this perfect amalgamation of my ancestors and I really feel their presence when I'm in there and so yeah I just find like what a simple and effective way of connecting to those deeper parts of ourselves that a lot of us feel perhaps lost or forgotten um how, like that's such a beautiful way to connect to land and to ancestors of our own beings and also ancestors of the stolen lands in which we reside on um and i just feel like yeah a lot of a lot of magic happens in those gardens for me and um yeah, what a beautiful practice of dismantling and decolonizing and, and one that is so accessible, you know. I I feel like 
you know, you were previously speaking about the food, like food security systems and how they kind of have been made white and privileged, but innately, like this is our birthright. And um, it's incredible in the ways in which you can plant a seed and the harvest is tenfold. And what a beautiful offering and way of connecting to your community. Like nothing brings me so much more joy than gifting a pumpkin to friends or, you know, like just being able to share the harvest. I feel like that's just so symbolic of the way in which I desire to be in, in community with the world around me. Yeah. And so also symbolic of what I, I, I feel is the trueness of our, of our nature, which is to give. And this idea that in the Western world, we had a hoard because of scarcity mindset, but in a world where you actually are connected to your food systems, you realize the deep abundance in which is given to you and that you're actually unable to eat everything a garden can offer. And so the only thing to do in deep reverence for those plants and 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 for those food is to share them so they don't go to waste and it's something that i i pray people come back to the simplicity of just spending an hour even once a week in in your garden with the sun or the rain on your back um because i feel like we're so fearful of weather even nowadays people don't even want to leave their homes if it's raining and this is just a continuation of our disconnect to the natural rhythms which feel so important for the revolution and for us to be able to reclaim what is truly ours, which is this deep, magical, mystical relationship with the earth. Mm-hmm. Tika, I wanted to offer you an opportunity to share um, your words with us. Um, maybe there's something that you would love to share before we have our final question. Mm. Okay, yeah, I've got a piece I'd love to share. Can you let me see the God in you? That load is heavy, and you, humble water and firewood carrier, have been walking mountains, unable to see the view, praying to something outside of you. Can you see those undulating valleys you are shaped by as you slither like a snake between them? painting your skin on dark chocolate earth, marking where you've been. The imprint of a passing moment now becomes the path for others to inhale and map the meeting place of bodies. The innate tension of connection, flames birth from friction. You look to dying stars for answers, but I want to sit by the fire of your ancestors. And when you are quiet enough, maybe you will hear the stirring rumination of rustling leaves. How I long to let the waves of bewilderment lap against the shores of my being. And on the cliff edge of awe, I want to plummage into something incomprehensible, something far, far greater than these inked words shall ever grasp. And humbly so, they too will submit themselves to that which is beyond them. For they have tasted music and poetry and know the grappling of the shapeless in attempt to fill the spaces in between. I want to sit at your feet in deep worship. Can you see the God in you? Just there. It isn't as far as you think. Those mountains don't need to be conquered and named in meaningless defeat. There is no fight, 
No great war you must blindly serve any longer. Can you put down that armour and let me see the God in you? Mm. Well, I'm just going to let mm. that resonate for a moment. <sighs> Thank you. Mm, thank you. Um, I have one final question that I always end the podcast on. Um, so take as long as you need to answer this. But what is the greatest truth that you have discovered in this lifetime? Mm. Oh, that's a big one, Ella. (laughs) I'm going to keep my answer simple and respond by saying that Everything is just here. It's all here. And yeah, all of the answers, all of the abstract questions and ponderings and contemplations, like it's all soothed when I come home to this moment and realize that it's all here. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna end with that. Mm. Thank you, Tika. Mm. Thank you for your words and for your time and for the work that you do and the way that you walk through the world with such grace. Um, I feel privileged to share in this community with you and yeah it's just very it's very warming of my heart to have conversations with women and like-minded people in this world who are carrying out real strength and courage to fight so thank you thank you so much ella it's been a real honor to be here